It is only God who can truly heal from disease, even though he has intermediate means of doctors and medicines and, 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 and all the other ways that, that we can overcome sicknesses. This statement, who heals all your diseases, is not a promise that God will heal all your temporal sicknesses, but that he will one day, and in his powerful work to defeat the penalty of sin, he has, he has defeated the sin which brings these diseases. God alone is the one who heals. Hello and welcome again to Grace Merrillville Weekly, a broadcast of Grace Community Church located in downtown Merrillville. Last week, or at the beginning of this week, Pastor Chris started in a two-part message from Psalm chapter 103. We pray that your heart has been encouraged and you have been emboldened in your love and devotion towards God. If you would, please open your Bibles to Psalm 103 as Pastor Chris concludes this powerful message. is the greatest benefit that any of us can ever receive from God. And we can receive it only because God gave his son over to death on the cross to procure it for us. So let us with all of our heart, praise the Lord for our forgiveness from sin's penalty, a forgiveness of sin's penalty. Second, we praise God for the defeat of sin's power. It says, who pardons all our iniquities, verse 3, who heals all your diseases. Jesus has conquered the sin that brings disease. It is only God who can truly heal from disease, even though he has intermediate means of doctors and medicines and, and, and all the other ways that, that we can overcome sicknesses. This statement, who heals all your diseases, is not a promise that God will heal all your temporal sicknesses, but that he will one day, and in his powerful work to defeat the penalty of sin, he has, he has defeated the sin which brings these diseases. God alone is the one who heals. Deuteronomy 13, 39. See now that I am, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and I give to life. I have wounded, I heal, and there was no one who can deliver from my hand. Disease is a result of sin. Thus in Christ, all diseases are ultimately healed. The fulfillment of this, as we well know, and certainly in a time like this, we understand it does not come now. It comes in the eternal state when sin and death have been removed entirely from this world. See, this states that God has defeated sin's power. The disease is a representation of the power that sin has. God has defeated that. But the presence of sin is not yet gone. We live in a fallen world. We ourselves remain with sin. And so these diseases continue, but they will one day end. And the, 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 the bad theology that flows out of a verse like this, that somehow it is the will or plan of God to heal all disease, is made manifestly ridiculous in the fact that people die. Where is the end of death? Disease brings death. Ultimately, death is the, is the greatest punishment or the greatest result of sin. Disease is just kind of a, a subcategory of death. And so who has defeated death? Which one of these faith healers has defeated death? It will not be defeated in its final form until sin and death are removed, cast into hell and the earth restored. In fact, God generally allows disease in our day and age to take its course for our own sanctification. He is certainly capable of healing disease, and he does at times choose to heal miraculously, and we are grateful. 
But it would seem that the vast majority of, for the vast majority of people and in the vast majority of situations, he allows disease to remain for growth and for sanctification until he returns again. Remember, the entire world is diseased. That is, the universe has been tainted. It is much greater than any individual or single sickness. He has healed disease from the standpoint or healed all diseases from the standpoint that he has defeated the sin which causes them. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, the, the very created order was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When will this happen? It says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. This is something we look forward to. But we do praise the Lord now that he has defeated the power of sin, which brings disease and which ultimately brings death. That has been defeated by the Lord Jesus. And we look forward to the day when in Christ that Defeat will be final. There will be no more disease, no more sin, no more death, and we will spend eternity with him. We do thank him for that. And that is far greater than simply or only thanking him for some kind of temporal healing. We ought to thank God for that. We ought to praise the Lord when someone from cancer is delivered, when someone who has the coronavirus gets well. That ought to be great praise to God. But there is a more fundamental praise which we should be offering up that he has delivered us from disease itself, the death and the sin that causes those things. So we have, and we should thank God for the defeat of sin's power as expressed in the phrase, he heals all your diseases. And we thank God for his redemption from sin's punishment. We have, we have received the benefit of sin's defeat, the benefit of being removed, its penalty being removed from us. And then he says, he redeems your life from the pit. We praise him for the fact that now death, even our physical death, that oftentimes disease brings, that that physical death for the believer, for the one who's put faith and trust in Christ, does not end in an eternal decay. He's not saying here that we're redeemed from dying at all. Certainly men die. I would, I think certainly in mind here, is that we are redeemed or delivered from premature death. That is, the death at the hands of some evil person or some sickness that would somehow overwhelm us apart from the power of God. That's impossible for believers. So certainly you will never die. You will never get sick and, and then go unto death unless God has decreed it. Nothing breaks through his protection of his people. He cares for them and he watches over them even when he takes them unto death. But the more fundamental meaning of this blessing is that death for the believer is not eternal. We do not go into eternal decay. The pit is shield, a place of death. For the believer, although we die, our presence and places with the Lord, and then ultimately to be with him forever. We are delivered from the pit even through our physical death. Consider what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.18. He was in prison, about to be beheaded by Nero. Our best understanding is that right after he writes, maybe months after he writes these words, he was beheaded by Nero and taken unto physical death. Listen to what he says. Because the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Think about that for a minute. Paul was about to be beheaded. He understood that he was going to die. 
How was he delivered from the evil deed? The evil deed happened to him. His head was chopped off. No, he was delivered from the evil deed because the Lord brought him safely to his heavenly kingdom. That's how we're delivered from the pit. Even though we physically die, that death is a gateway to our presence with God and his presence with us for all of eternity. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then the fourth thing that we praise the Lord for is we exalt, we praise him that he has exalted us with loving compassion. It says who crowns, the end of verse four, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. This is a fascinating idea. The crown placed upon the head of the king revealed the greatness of the king's glory. The crown of loving kindness and compassion placed upon us does not reveal our glory, but God's. The greatness of his loving kindness and compassion dispensed to us is what exalts us and lifts us up. Not our own characteristics, not our own abilities, not our own power, but the mighty power of God dispensed to us in loving compassion. That is our crown. That is our glory. That is how we are exalted. Not by the Lord demonstrating our worth and our goodness or our prowess, it is by the Lord demonstrating his greatness by loving and showing compassion to us who are the most undeserving. Psalm 65, 11, speaking of this idea of crowning, you've crowned the year with your bounty. Your paths drip with fatness. You have demonstrated, you've shown your glory by pouring out your blessing. And this is what the Lord does for us. He crowns us with loving kindness and compassion. He's exalted us through loving us and granting us his compassion. And then fifthly, he has provided for us refreshing satisfaction. Five, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the evil, like the eagle, excuse me. He takes us through each day and year of our lives with the richest of provision, giving us the good things of food and clothing, comfort and security that we in no way deserve. Even in the darkness, darkest and most difficult of times when all good things seem to have been taken from us, he satisfies us with himself his presence, and his spiritual provision. He meets the true needs of our years, that of wisdom, grace, fruit of the spirit, guidance, not simply the temporal ones. Psalm 23, 5. You have prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, a bountiful feast in the midst of all the difficulties and enemies around. You have cared for us, if I could paraphrase that, you have given us the greatest of blessings in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. He has, he, has, he has blessed us and strengthened us so that we can appear at that table in a presentable fashion. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, will relentlessly pursue me, will find me and overtake me every day. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 63, 5, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth offers praise, praises with joyful lips. He's given us everything we need for our satisfaction. And in his giving of these riches, he continually renews us. It says, so that you are renewed like the eagle. The picture being of the strength, the vitality of the eagle as it flies and soars and seeks out its prey, that we are granted that kind of spiritual energy. We are granted that kind of ongoing strength in the midst of the greatest of difficulties. Paul says it this way, maybe a New Testament way to say that we are renewed in the midst of difficulty, like the eagle as it's borne up on the strength of its wings. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, therefore we do not lose heart. 
but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, regardless of how difficult things come, regardless of the sicknesses that do overtake us in this life and the, and the weakness that we experience, yet we are revived by the Lord as he satisfies us with everything we need to praise him, honor him, and serve him. And so these are the ways in which we are to command our soul to forget none of his benefits. Really, these cover every benefit the Lord provides as he gives us pardon from sin, defeat, or, or, or the benefits of def the defeat of death. He redeemed our life from the pit. He crowns us with loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies our years with good things. Now the psalmist moves from this personal proclamation of his goodness to a really a public proclamation of the Lord's praiseworthy character. Look at verse six. So it, the, the focus shifts from an individual personal praise now to a proclamation of the Lord's goodness. The Lord performs righteous deeds. Back to naming the name of Yahweh. So we go from thanking him personally to then making this proclamation to all around us and again, still to our own souls. We proclaim these things about God's praiseworthy character. We'll just move our way down through the list. They're overwhelming. There isn't any way we could dig into each one of them as we need. Well, let's just be, again, be overwhelmed by the greatness and goodness of these deeds that the Lord performs. This is why he's to be blessed. The Lord performs righteous deeds. We thank him for his righteousness. Really, these, each of these come in the form of, of a couplet. He makes a statement, and then really he reinforces the statement by a, a further explanation. So his righteousness is to do what? To bring good and right judgments for all who are oppressed. The Lord knows those who have been dealt with unrighteously. He cares for the afflicted. He lifts them up. He properly judges and properly treats every person on the earth. He never makes a mistake. He is completely just. He replaces injustice with right judgment. He properly cares for and makes provision for those who have been unrighteously treated. The evil one is harmed and oppressed. Those who love and trust in God, the Lord defends, protects, and makes provision for them. Psalm 146, 7, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free. And next, we proclaim his, the greatness of his revelation. Greatness of his revelation, he said, it says in verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The psalmist praises God that he would reveal his character and nature to his people, and that's exemplified in God demonstrating his glory to Moses. How? Really in mind here is where Moses calls out to the Lord that he might provide for him a view of his glory. And what does God do? He comes before him, really hiding Moses so he cannot see his, his, his presence, but he proclaims to Moses the greatness of his character. Moses was one whom God, to whom God revealed his character and nature personally, and he's revealed these things to us in his word. So he revealed himself to his people, both in his words and in his actions, his acts, it says, to the sons of Israel. And we are to remember and thank God for his willingness to reveal himself to his people then and to us now. John 5, 45. It says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. Why? For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The revelation that God has given to us through his people written down in scripture is we are to thank him and praise him that he would reveal himself to us in this way. Third, a compassionate grace that God provides, a compassionate grace. Verse eight, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is his nature. 
revealed in Exodus 34 when God passes before Moses. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Our Lord is slow to anger. He's, he's patient with us. He waits. Even though we are sinful, he is gracious. And in this grace, he continues to give us his loving provision. He continues to establish or, or remain in relationship with us, even though we do not deserve it for a moment. His steadfast love is not measured out in small doses. It is abounding. Our God overflows with an infinite supply of steadfast love. Isaiah, or Psalm 30, uh, 130 verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him there is abundant restoration. So we praise him for his compassionate grace. That is the favor that we do not deserve to be in relationship with us, to be patient with us, to care for us. Then we praise him for his restoration and reconciliation. Verse 9, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. The ESV says, uh, for that last part, or for the first part, he will not always chide us. That is, he will not constantly come and bring his discipline, bring his judgment for our sin. He will not remain angry with us, as it were, concerning the nature of our own sin. Why? Because he has made provision for that sin in Christ. And even though now we remain sinful, he deals with our sin, he, he brings discipline even upon his people, yet there will be a time when that is done when his anger against sin is entirely removed, that is, even his temporal displays of judgment against it because sin itself is removed. Psalm 30, verse five, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. You see, God is not spiteful. He doesn't hold a grudge like we do. Well, all right, I forgave your sins, but I'm still bitter. I forgave your sins, but I'm gonna keep treating you as, as, as those sins might deserve. No, he removes all bitterness, all anger ultimately, and we stand before him entirely free from all of the consequences of our sins. Micah 7, 18, who is God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Number five here, we thank him for his judicial grace. In verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our iniquities, nor rewarded us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Even though he does discipline us, bringing temporal punishment for our sins, he has not given us what we deserve. We deserve immediate eternal hell. Instead, we've been given God's abundant common grace for unbelievers and his patience and kindness to draw them to repentance. And he's given us his direct justification, that is seeing us with Christ's righteousness, that is for believers. We've been offered the forgiveness of sin, which we do not deserve. He was not required to make a way for us to be delivered from our deserved punishment, and yet he did, and he does. So this, we have this gracious compassion, that is, we don't deserve compassion, and he gives it. We have this judicial grace, we don't deserve to be freed from the penalty of our sin, and yet he provides it. In every way, he pours out his grace upon us. And we seek the forgiveness that God has given based on his merit, not our own. So we have this judicial grace. We praise him for his steadfast love. Well, I think this whole next section has to do with the loyal, covenant, ongoing, powerful, overwhelming love of God for us. He says, for as 
High as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He's mindful that we're but dust. And so in his steadfast love, we, we see the characteristics of it laid out in this passage. The, his steadfast love, his ongoing gracious covenant love is infinite, as high as the heavens are above the earth. There is no way that it could ever be exhausted because it is not like our love. Easily, we, we easily run out of our capacity for love, but God's is infinite. It is high as the heavens are above the earth. It's an absolving love. I love this part of it. It says here that as far as the east, verse 12, is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us. He doesn't just forgive us. He then removes us entirely. He takes that sin and, as it were, takes it as far, an infinite distance away. East never touches west. It just continues to go. And so when God sees us, it's not as though he has the shadow of our sin right behind us. No, our sin is gone. He does not see us with any of the lingering effects of that sin in Christ. And this is something that we can never do. We always view people in light of the sin which they have committed. And we are always tainted by as much as we seek to forgive. And on this earth, that will be true. But God is in no way, he in no way sees the shadow of our sin lingering upon us. How wonderful it would, it would be if we were like God in this and we didn't allow the sins of others to shadow them after we've offered forgiveness. God doesn't. He has fully absolved us in his great love. This steadfast love is a fatherly love. He says, as a father has compassion on his children. He's not just dispensed to us in a kind of uh, judicial indifference. Well, I will love you. It is as a father would care for each one of his children individually, pouring out his compassion upon them. The greatness of his love and its intimate relational nature are here observed. He's not just a mighty God who declares our sins removed. He's an infinite loving father who has extended his sympathy and empathy towards us in effective actions to deliver us from our pitiable condition. Jeremiah 31, 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly shall remember him. My heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. This is who God is. He yearns for his children. He loves them, cares for them, pours out his infinite personal compassion on them. We need to remember that daily. Even when we sin, as we sin and wrestle and struggle, the fatherly compassion of the Lord is upon us. It says here, he knows our frame. This is, this is his great compassion. He always remembers our sinfulness. He always remembers our finiteness. He never forgets it, and he treats us accordingly. He says he's mindful that we're but dust. He knows that we, that we are, are fragile, that we easily come apart, that we easily de decompose back to dust, and he cares for us graciously and compassionately each day in the midst of our finiteness and our foolishness. He knows these things, and he loves us anyway, just as the Father knows of his children. He knows their capacities. He knows their struggles. He knows the things that they wrestle with. God knows this for each one of us. And instead of condemning us for them, he loves us in them. And if we could grasp this, our days would be far more joyful. If we would praise him for this, our days would pass much more joyfully. This is an everlasting love. Infinite and fatherly and everlasting, it says, from everlasting to everlasting, even in comparison to us. As we saw in Psalm 90, similar here, man, as for man, his days are like grass. We see in verse 15, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes when the wind has passed over, it's no more. Its place acknowledges it no longer, but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. 
in contrast to our finite passing in a moment, his love lasts forever. Nothing then could ever separate us from the love of God, not even an infinity of time. Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? His love is infinitely great and it is infinitely long. His patience lasts forever because of the nature of his love. And then his love is righteous. This is a righteous love at the end of verse 17. His loving kindness is from everlasting to everlasting and his righteousness to children's children. I would like to point out in verse 18, and he said it several times throughout this section, that this loving kindness is poured out on a particular kind of people. That is his active, personal, careful, compassionate love. It is poured out on those who fear him. And then in verse 18, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. Yes, this love has a qualification. This special fatherly covenant love is poured out upon those who fear the Lord and who obey him. But who are those? Those are the very ones whom God, by his great grace, has chosen through his word to change their hearts. He is the one who produces this condition. Yes, it's necessary. Yes, God does not pour out his covenant love on people who hate him and rebel against him in a fundamental way, who refuse to acknowledge his goodness. He cannot and he will not. It wouldn't be just. He pours out this kind of love on those who have a true fear of him and who seek to obey him. But that is every true believer because God produces that in the heart. He, by the spirit of God, through the word of God, enables us to respond back to him in this way. We don't do this first and then he loves us. He loves us, saves us, redeems us, and we respond back to him in this way. And it is evidence of the the loving work that he has done in our own hearts. And so God has this steadfast love and we thank him for that. And then the last thing we thank the Lord for here before we switch to the praise of all the earth is his royal sovereignty. It's a great way. It's a great transition. So he works through all these characteristics of God. And then in verse 19, he thanks him for his royal sovereignty as then he commands the entire universe to praise God. Look at verse 18 or verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. We thank him and praise him that he is the sovereign ruler of all the earth because anyone else ruling the earth would be absolute disaster. Anyone else overseeing the universe would, would bungle it badly, even as our physical rulers, our earthly rulers, so often get things wrong, so often make foolish decisions, even though we pray for them and, and, and God uses them so that we might be able to pursue our, God's work here. Yet we understand that only the Lord is sovereign in this way. Only he is the one who oversees the entire world. He's established his throne in the heavens. His foundation, the foundation of his sovereign power is built over the universe. His sovereignty, then his kingdom rules over all. There is no power or sphere of influence that does not bend the knee to the sovereign rule of the almighty God. From the external reaches of the universe to the smallest of the atoms and the forces that bind them together. God is sovereignly in control and we praise him for this. We honor him for this because that sovereign power is is bounded with and, and is pursued in all of these other characteristics of righteousness, justice, love, compassion, and grace. He is the sovereign Lord of all the earth. And therefore, we finish out with, in these last three verses with the command to praise the Lord, all the earth. Look at verse 20. 
Bless the Lord. He goes back to his theme. Again, offer back up to God. Delight his heart by honoring him with who he is and what he's done. Bless the Lord, you as angels. He begins with the with the powerful supernatural beings that he has created. Really, all spiritual beings are found in these next two verses. Bless the Lord, you as angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you as hosts, you who serve him doing his will. All of the spiritual beings, his hosts, really his armies, those who accomplish his work, do his will. His angels, those who are his messengers and ministers, and those who are designed to praise him and glorify him, and who do in fact do that. They obey his voice. They perform his work. Even these mighty ones, so much more powerful than we as human beings, having so much greater access to the very throne room of God in, in presence these very beings are called to bend the knee, to praise and honor the Lord for his greatness, even as we are. All spiritual beings. There is no, ultimately, there is no spiritual being in the universe that will not give praise and glory to God, even if and as they are forced to do so at the end. Even the fallen angels, the demons, and Satan himself will offer back up to God the rightful praise that he deserves. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, both supernatural beings and human beings will proclaim to God his greatness and his goodness. And all are called upon to do so. Every spiritual being in the universe is commanded to offer back up to the Lord praise because of his might and his power and his characteristics, which transcend theirs, even the greatest of beings, to an infinite degree. You, his hosts, bless the Lord. You who serve him, doing his will. And then he says, bless the Lord, all you his, all you works of his. Not only the created beings, but then every act of creation, every star, all of the, the components of the universe and every piece of the created order on earth is to offer praise back up to the Lord. Psalm 148.3, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail and snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, young men and virgins, old men and children. Bless the Lord. That's the command because he's worthy. He created them all. They are to offer back up to him the praise that he deserves. And then he ends really on a crescendo. He goes to, to the outward extent of the universe, to supernatural, powerful beings. And then he finishes with a, with a final exhortation back to his original statement, bless the Lord, oh my soul. He makes this personal at the end. And I want to leave you with that. Yes, this greatness of our God, really in, in ways that we could never fully understand or comprehend, laid out for us here in 22 verses that we can barely wrap our minds around. Yes, it goes all the way out to every created being in the universe and then back to you personally and individually today, this morning. Will you personally praise him with a whole heart? We command your soul to praise God as he so richly deserves. Will you personally rehearse all of his goodness and blessings towards you? All of it. Yes, it's going to take you some time. Because maybe you as a family would sit around after this message and just talk of the greatness of the Lord, rehearsing all of the good things that he has done. Will you privately and publicly remember and proclaim his praiseworthy deeds? Yes, to your family. Yes, in your own heart. But then to the rest of the world as well, they need to know. This is not the time to be silent. 
This is not the time to retreat into ourselves, but it is the time to praise our God publicly and proclaim to the world his greatness. Will you join with all the created order and blessing our gracious creator? Or will you remove your heart and soul from from the chorus of all of the universe? And will you remember finally that this is not just something you're commanded. This is not just something that is, would be nice for you to do. This is not just something that is, is part of what we do as believers in one sense. Will you remember that you were created to praise and honor your creator? And only as you honor him and bless him in this way, will you ever find any true satisfaction? It is for the believer who has been saved, who has been, who has been graciously delivered and then, and then brought into intimate relationship with God. It is for us to live out our days praising and honoring the Lord that we might be fulfilled in him and that he might be seen to be the glorious God that he truly is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we have shared this morning just simply to to praise you, to perhaps understand a little better your your greatness. Many of these things, Lord, we, we, we confess we knew them. We were aware of them. These are things we've been told and taught, many of us for all of our lives and Yet, Father, so often we are lax in blessing you and in, in speaking these things back to you and the praise that you so richly deserve. And so I ask that you would grant us as a church during this time of, of great crisis, of, of difficulty, that instead of looking for our satisfaction, even in your provision of, of what you might give to alleviate these problems, that we would praise you and honor you for your greatness, that we would find our satisfaction by extolling your goodness that our hearts would be filled, that our lives would be productive, and that your name would be glorified. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Again, we pray that your heart has been truly encouraged by the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more about the many ministries offered at Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that's gracemaryville.org. There you will be able to find not only more information about the many ministries that we do offer, you'll also be able to find a complete audio archive of messages that have been presented from not only the pulpit at Grace Community Church, but also in different teaching capacities at Grace. We look forward to you joining us next week as we continue to provide solid biblical teaching from the pulpit at Grace.